The following is a special episode of Common Sense Digest, produced in partnership with the Denver Gazette, Colorado Politics, and executives partnering to invest in children. We present affordable and accessible childcare, Colorado's workforce challenge. The high cost of childcare acts as a barrier for parents, particularly women, seeking to return to the workforce, exacerbating Colorado's labor shortage. In this panel, industry experts and policymakers explored ways to create better access to quality and affordable childcare for working families. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Common Sense Digest. Here is Common Sense Institute President and CEO, Kristen Strome. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. I know a few other attendees might trickle in this morning. Real quickly, my name is Kristen Strome with Common Sense Institute. And for those of you who might not be familiar with Common Sense Institute, we are a nonpartisan free enterprise think tank, and we focus on the most pressing issues that are facing Coloradans and try and see what the impacts to solving those issues might be in terms of jobs and the economy. Since 2020, we've actually been teaming up with EPIC, calling attention to the She Session that really devastated women across the country during the pandemic. I want to especially thank Nicole Real with EPIC for being such a leading voice on the issue we're going to discuss today for our state. The project today and the release of the report, The Growing Strain on the Child Care Business Model and the Economic Impacts and Opportunities for Improving Affordability and Accessibility, has really been underway since that time. The project's been in the works for over a year, and we were thrilled to partner again with EPIC on the work. Today, we're also partnering with Colorado Politics. Thank you so much to Vince and Luigi and the Colorado Politics team for putting this event together, managing all the logistics, and having this robust conversation today. If you do want to read the report, I'd encourage you to do so. It's actually available on our website, commonsenseinstituteco.org, and you can download it and find it today. I want us to think back to the pandemic, not much many of us like going through that exercise, but what seemed like overnight, 4.5 million working moms across the U.S. left the workforce. Suddenly, moms and dads had to figure out how to work, maybe be a teacher, and run a childcare facility. I struggled. We all struggled. There is no greater stress for a working parent than finding a childcare solution that fits the needs of your family. If something falls through, your life is upended really quickly. As a mom of four, I know that reality all too well. I know that I cannot be productive, contribute, flourish in my job without good childcare support. All working moms and dads struggle with this on an ongoing basis. And what we found since the pandemic is we have recovered somewhat. It's great news, but there's still more work to be done. In CSI's latest jobs report, we found that over 43,000 women are still sidelined from the workforce since the pandemic in Colorado. We also know that a lot of childcare facilities closed during the pandemic. We are down across the state over 425 facilities. To put that in perspective, that is a gap of about 95,000 children that need care that families can't get. And to top it off, Colorado has the eighth highest child care in the nation. On average, families in Colorado are spending nearly 20% of their income on child care costs. I want everybody to know this is not sustainable. You all know that. There's no way that we can have a healthy, vibrant, flourishing economy and state unless we come up with bold solutions towards this problem. We are in the urgent need for reform, and I'm thrilled today to have experts across the state engaging in the discussion, because I do believe that there's real opportunity moving forward. I'd now like to turn it over to Luigi Del Puerto, who's going to kick this off. As the editor of Colorado Politics and Den the Denver Gazette, Luigi has his finger on the pulse of issues that matter most in Colorado. He was formerly the, with the Arizona Capital Times. He also knows all there is to know about Arizona, which is really good news for CSI since we just expanded there. But that's just one of the reasons we're always thrilled to have him moderate our event. Luigi has a special brand of wisdom. 
If you've ever followed him on Twitter, you know that he is a husband and a father, and he often passes along the wise words of his kiddo. Earlier this summer, he dispensed this pearl. Kiddo, there are two kinds of parents in the world. There's a mom who knows just what to do. Luigi responded, and kiddo, and we all have our flaws, dad, but I still love you. I loved that one. Today, Luigi will help us shed light on the issues surrounding childcare in Colorado and the challenges families across the state are facing. Luigi, thanks so much for joining us and leading us through this conversation. And thanks to your kiddo, too. Uh, thank you, Christine. I will make sure that he knows about it. And thank you, everybody. Good morning and welcome to Colorado Conversation on Affordable and Accessible Child Care for Our State's Workforce. Um, as uh, Christine noted, this forum is brought to you by Colorado Politics, which is your most comprehensive source for political news and analysis in the Denver Gazette, uh, which is, of course, an interactive source for breaking news, sports, weather, business, and entertainment. We value objectivity, the search for truth, and we're not afraid to pursue accountability journalism. I also want to thank our partners again for making this program happen. The Common Sense Institute, uh, which, as Christine noted, is a nonpartisan research organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of Colorado's economy. A CSI is at the forefront of important discussions about the future of free enterprise in our state and aims to have an impact on the issues that matter most to us. I also want to thank Epic, founded 13 years ago by a group of business executives. Epic serves as the business community's nonpartisan voice for early childhood, working to develop infrastructure and advance policies that build the workforce of tomorrow while supporting the workforce of today. And um, uh, we have a great panel this morning. Uh, but before then, I just want to note to our audience, um, uh, we would like to solicit your engagement and your input. Uh, if you want to ask questions, please do so via the uh, Q&A box or the chat box. We're going to try to get to as many as of them toward the end of the program. Please, so please don't hesitate uh, to go ahead and ask your questions. Um, I forgot to mention that Christine is the president and CEO of Common Sense Institute. Thank you again. Uh, as I mentioned, we have a great panel this morning. Joining us is Tony Spinoza, the vice president of business development at Community Hospital in Grand Junction. In addition to her role at Community Hospital, Tony also teaches as an adjunct faculty member in the kinesiology department at Colorado Mesa University. She served two terms on the Grand Junction Parks and Recreation Advisory Board, three terms on the Colorado Mesa University Alumni Board, uh, she serves as chair of the Greater Grand Junction Sports Commission and the chair for the Strive Board. Tony, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Also joining us this morning is Representative Colin Larson, who is a member of the General Assembly representing House District 22. Is that correct, uh, Representative Larson? That's House District 22, right? Yep, it, it's correct until November. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> Great to be here. Uh, Representative Larson has been serving South Jefferson County since 2019. He is a small business owner. He started his business from the ground up, facing the same challenges that business owners across the metro area face, all while creating a community asset for the residents of his district. Uh, Representative, thank you for joining us this morning. Also joining us is Pat Myers, who is the Chief Economic Recovery Officer and Ch Executive Director of Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade. In March 2021, Pat was appointed by the governor as the executive director of the office and as the chief Re economic recovery officer of the state. He previously served or is serving on the commissioning committee for the, uh, for the USS Colorado uh, Board of Advisors for Quest Hospitality Ventures as a trustee for the University of California Hastings Foundation, the Downtown Denver Partnership Board, the advisory board of the Pillsbury Institute for Hospitality and Entrepreneurship, and as an HB Meek executive in residence at Cornell University School of Hotel Administration, uh, the University of Colorado Boulder Parent Leadership Society Board, and as a trustee for the University of Colorado Foundation. Pat also served in the US Navy Submarine Service. Pat, thank you for your service and thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks, that was too long, but thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, also joining us is Colin Stewart, who is the owner and operator of STEM Child Care. Uh, Colin is the founder and CEO of STEM Child Care, an educational startup focused on offering a center-based STEM curriculum to infants, toddlers, and preschoolers. Uh, he earned an undergraduate degree from Princeton University, MPH from Columbia University, and an MBA from Dartmouth College, and has worked for Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, United Healthcare, DaVita, 
as an and uh, as an investment banker and leader of revenue generating business units. Colin, thank you for joining us this morning. Happy to be here. Uh, also joining us this morning is uh, Johnson Tidmore, who is uh, who proudly joined the Jeffco Economic Development Corporation in May of 2020, ushering in the 65th year for Colorado's oldest economic development organization. And in January of this year, the Jeffco uh, EDC board added the West Metro Chamber and leadership Jeffco to their organizational umbrella. He's a graduate of Auburn University with a Master of Public Administration. Uh, he joined uh, in 2011 the Dothan. Is that correct? Is that, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, Dothan Downtown Perfect. Redevelopment Authority. Thank you. And as executive organization of the organization, and in 2017, he took the helm of the newly formed Spartanburg Downtown Development Partnership. And in December uh, in 2018, uh, his role was expanded as executive vice president of corporate and urban development for the Economic Futures Group. Um, uh, Jansen, again, thank you for joining us this, this morning. Thank you. Happy to be here this morning. And uh, also joining us this morning is Nicole Real, who is with Epic, and Nicole will provide us with the closing remarks at some point, uh, 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 closing remarks at the end of the program. So Nicole, thank you for joining us as well. Thanks, Luigi. Uh, as I mentioned, we have a great panel this morning. We have uh, a big subject to talk about. Let me just start with, with uh, Colin Stewart. Sir, tell us what the situation is in your childcare at the moment. Uh, I want to know, for example, uh, how many children you're serving? What is your capacity? And I guess more importantly, because when we talked this morning, I think you mentioned your capacity is at 75%. Nothing to do with the demand. There's plenty of demand, a lot to do with your inability to staff up. A hundred percent. So uh, I have a large childcare center uh, located in Castle Rock. Uh, we have a capacity of 164 students. Uh, as Luigi said, we're roughly at about 75% capacity at the moment, uh, but demand is very strong. Uh, it is staffing that is our, our biggest challenge, right? Uh, staffing, uh, retention, training, uh, and productivity um, are really our biggest challenges right now, right? Um, before the pandemic, um, Productivity was much higher than it is now, even though we've uh, given out substantial pay raises. So labor, um, as a as one of the cost drivers in the industry, has increased twenty five to thirty percent. We have to staff more uh, educators on the uh, uh, on the premises at any given time because of the number of callouts we're experiencing. Right, uh, on any given day, ten to twenty percent of our staff will call out for. Uh, a variety of reasons, uh, including COVID. So I'm, I'm sorry, you're saying that you mentioned a couple of things there, but you're saying that um, 10 to 20% of your staff will say, like, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to work today for any variety of reasons, including uh, getting COVID-19. Correct. And and you said that uh, the when you mentioned that the, the problem is hiring people, I'm presuming the reason is that you're competing with, let's say the um, you know, fast food chain across the street. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that challenge that you're facing? Uh, sure, absolutely. So uh, before the pandemic, our average wage was in the, you know, 15 to $17 range, uh, which was above what the uh, fast food operators in the industry are paying. Now our average wage uh, is north of $20 an hour, but McDonald's, KFC, Chick-fil-A, everybody's paying 20 plus dollars an hour. Right. So there are more jobs um, that than there are employees looking for jobs. Right. So the uh, the mentality that uh, I need to keep this job, it, it, it's it's kind of falling by the wayside. Right. Because there are so many jobs available. Right. If this job doesn't work out, I can just go and get another one and I'll, and I'll, I'll make the same money that I previously did. Thank you. And, and Pat, I want to bring you into the discussion, sir. Is this is this a situation that Colin and his child care companies facing? Is this endemic across the state? All the industries are, are facing this problem. Can you tell can you flesh that out a little bit uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the child care industry and which other industries may be fa- may be facing you know, similar staffing challenges? So I think Colin nailed it. It is I, I do think it's pretty broad based. We have like the United States, we have two open jobs for every unemployed worker. We definitely have both a geographic and skills mismatch because we have people who are looking for jobs that can't get jobs, and we have industries that are looking for workers who can't find workers. Um, 
we see that probably mostly in uh, hospitality, healthcare, and childcare. Uh, and just to just to frame it a little bit, Luigi, there in childcare alone, there are eight percent less childcare workers than there were pre-pandemic. That's thirteen hundred people just in the state of Colorado. So you can see that 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 is just an indicator of of the scope of the problem that the state is facing in childcare. And as you said, it's uh, it's. That's that's beyond childcare, but but it certainly is hitting the childcare industry. And and I imagine, Pat, just really quickly, eight percent fewer, eight percent less than before the pandemic. I would imagine because you know during the pandemic we shut down a couple of things. Uh, most people decided to work remotely, and so at that point there was no need for childcare for for many families. Um, uh, is that and that situation just sort sort of perpetuated itself? Is that, is that what happened? So I think it's a combination of things. First of all, um, childcare, like you were, you were mentioning fast food and I came out of the fast food industry, fast casual before I, before I started in government, uh, is a, is, it's a low margin business. And, uh, at, at the best of times, it was probably, on the edge of, of, of profitability where, uh, where when you started to lose customers, uh, you, you, you didn't have the, you didn't have the wherewithal to stay in business. So a lot of, a lot of the mom and pop childcare facilities and, and probably a lot of the institutional ones as well. I'm not a childcare expert, but I, I think this is across the state just could not hang on and, and stay in business, much like restaurants and, and other parts of, of industry. And uh, yeah, you have people who were, or were either weren't working at all or were working remote and no longer needed childcare services. Although I will say that has completely shifted. We, our labor force participation rate for women is significantly less than for men. And we think one of the predominant factors in that is the lack of childcare. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's definitely a problem, but I think you're right. I think that, that you know, the, the clients weren't there anymore. And so the facilities shut down. Yeah, Tony, I wanna to ask you because you're working in a, in a, in a hospital in a rural area. And obviously, you serve families and employees with unique and immediate needs for childcare. And I'm wondering what does childcare access and affordability look like in Grand Junction, for example. And um, I, I'm also wondering, from from the point of view of your hospital, what you're what you're doing uh, to help address this uh, this challenge. Yeah. So a few years ago, our community really looked at what childcare was in our community, how many slots there were. And it was determined we are actually 4,000 slots short for a community of our size, the entire valley, which ranges from Pruda to Palisade and includes Grand Junction. So we know that some of the waiting list time are upwards of a year to a year and a half. The affordability of childcare, as you mentioned, is, is astronomical. And when we have, as Colin mentioned, some of our lower wage earners almost having to spend half of their income on childcare, they just decide and determine to leave the workforce. And that's exactly what we saw happen. This was really heightened during the pandemic when schools and childcare centers were closed, yet our employees were continuing to have to come to work every single day. And that really heightened our leadership and, and the awareness of this issue. And so what we are now doing is we are building an on-site child care center that will have 100 slots. Our employees will have the first right of refusal to those slots, and any remaining slots will then be open to the community, hoping to lessen the burden of child care in our community. The second piece of that is we are working with our foundation to fundraise and create an endowment so we can have sliding fee scales for our lower wage earners. Um. So, so you have a hospital and now you've decided we need to offer our employees a childcare setting within our, is it within the campus or very close to the campus? Yep. So we refer to it, it's in our backyard, right? And so when you think about what kids are doing, they're out in the backyard, they're having a great time. They'll be home at dinner time. And so 
that's how we have been affectionately referring to it. So it's, it's within walking distance. It's just off um, our south side of the campus. Got it. And I want to go to Representative Larson at, at the moment, but I want to ask just J Jensen, how is this problem manifesting in Jeffco County? Um, uh, and, and, you know, I think many, a lot of the viewers here who are watching are parents. Um, uh, you know, I had to go bring my, yeah, I had a difficult time finding childcare, you know, after, after school childcare for, for my kid. And that meant that instead of having to pick him up, you know, two hours later after school, I had to go pick him up in the middle of my work um, and kind of scramble uh, that way. You know, thankfully, I have a job that allows me a little bit of that flexibility, but I, I, I want to go ask Jansen what you're seeing in your community. Yeah, you know, as, as economic developers, what we're really looking at is that workforce number, which is defined by the number of residents that are active in the workforce or actively seeking work at that time. And what we saw was this dynamic between the pandemic itself and child care and the cost and the availability of it is it put these households at a decision point. It made them have these conversations of what the value of that job is versus what they're giving up on the other end uh, to make that child care happen or to help have these other aspects uh, fulfilled. And we saw a lot of our qualified talent and workforce leave the market. In fact, in 2020, 5% of our workforce, that's not a small number, 5% in Jefferson County stepped away from the workforce, no longer in it, no longer pursuing jobs. Uh, we know, and, and you saw some of those numbers earlier, that was uh, heavily weighted towards uh, females that left that workforce. And while some of that's coming back, it's not coming back at the same scale of our population growth and what we should have in that workforce. And when you've got a statewide unemployment at three and a half percent and Jeffco sitting at 2.7% as of May, losing that talent and those minds and those that are, are willfully stepping aside due to something like childcare uh, impacts our ability to, to, to create more jobs and bring in more companies. Um, and, and it's a challenge. It's a real challenge for us locally. Yeah, I, I can't imagine if your, you know, your economy loses five percent or or five percent of of the eligible workforce is not working. That's uh, a lot of pro productivity that suddenly uh, is no longer available to your, uh, you know, to the state, for example. Oh, and talking about the state, Representative Larson, sir, can you kind of describe to us how the state, uh, from your point of view, has addressed, uh, confronted uh, this uh, childcare challenge? Thank you. Um, well, so. For, for folks in the, the paying attention to the legislature and operating in this space, obviously the creation of the Office of Early Childhood was kind of a watershed moment, um, which is, I wouldn't say that's a completed thing. We've passed the, the authorizing legislation, um, which I was fairly involved with. Uh, ultimately, it was uh, Representative Sirota and, and Garnett that carried that piece of legislation through. Uh, and we are implementing right now. But, you know, for all the reasons that we've heard from from all the panelists uh, today, you know, there's a tremendous workforce need. There's also a tremendous potential upside for uh, K-12 preparedness, uh, you know, early literacy, mathematics. The numbers are uh, and the data is very compelling uh, if we can uh, retain the gains made from early childhood, we have an issue there, uh, but that's more of a K through 12 issue. But that was my uh, real excitement in getting involved with this. So uh, Office of Early Childhood getting stood up, they're doing a number of things. Um, but first of all, there should be a, a tremendous amount of money available vis-a-vis uh, -vis the nicotine tax that was passed by voters um, the last election to hopefully help address some of these uh, staffing issues uh, if for no other reason, just making making the overall ecosystem uh, more flush with cash. So we'll see. We're definitely in a in a transition period, um, you know, here where where we're we're getting these new programs set up. Hopefully, they'll be because of all of the additional investment. Um, there'll be better infrastructure pipeline for getting employees trained, getting people properly credentialed. Um, I saw in the Q and A there was a question about on the job training. I do think that's hopefully something that the um, administration looks into finding that right balance between uh, credentialing, but also, you know, getting people into the system, getting them on the workforce. Obviously, you, wanna, you don't want to cut corners when it comes to safety or background checks, but uh, in terms of on-the-job training, getting people in the door um, and, you know, alleviating some of these staffing issues that uh, Colin was talking about, I think uh, would take precedence to perhaps, you know, making sure that they get some kind of credential 
uh, before they enter the workforce. So there's a lot of moving parts to this. Uh, and we are, from the state perspective, we're just at the beginning of it because, like I said, uh, Office of Early Childhood just got set up this summer uh, and we're still still a ton of moving parts there. Thank you for that summary, sir. And I think there's about $465 million that went into childcare investment. Uh, and there, there might have been more, but that's uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's what I can find that we, we have reported on in terms of just investments and grants. I want to ask Nicole about that. There's a, there's a ton of money that's going into the childcare industry. I think earlier in the year, the governor um, uh, allocated about $100 million bucks um, uh, also into the childcare industry. What, what, two questions for you, ma'am. What does that money mean for your industry? And also, the second question is, if I were looking for a job and, uh, you know, one of the options is going into childcare uh, and the other option is going into a fast food chain and the pay is, Colin uh, Stewart noted, it's comparably, comparably the same, why would I go to the to a childcare setting? If you can, um, if you can tackle those uh, two questions, that would be awesome. Yeah, thanks, Luigi. So I think first off, uh, you know, we saw some really landmark investments in legislation this year um, to support early care and education. Um, certainly, you know, the one hundred million dollar uh, bill that came out of actually the Economic Recovery Task Force was, you know, really going to be instrumental in helping us keep childcare businesses afloat here in Colorado. You know, when we look at the data compared to other states, Colorado has actually done a better job of retaining its childcare industry and supporting those businesses and staying open. We've seen a lot of other states actually have drastically um, more losses in terms of those closures, unfortunately. So, of course, some of that funding actually went to more immediately um, to more immediate relief for those businesses, but it also invested funds into areas where we can, for example, um, support the development of child care facilities across the state and make sure that as we have um, perhaps new entrepreneurs or existing ones who need to expand or start new locations, they have access to those capital funds. Uh, we made an investment as a state in supporting um, what we would call family friend and neighbor or informal care providers, recognizing that oftentimes families um, really work with their neighbors or family members or friends to provide care. And we wanted to make sure that those individuals also had access to resources and health and safety trainings um, and things like that as well. So. I think lots of great work happening in Colorado. We made strides towards supporting the operating costs of childcare businesses as well. Representative Dylan Roberts, who's actually on the call today, uh, helped us run a bill to create a property tax exemption for nonprofit childcare businesses as well. So some great work there. I think what people also need to recognize is that being an early childhood educator, which I have been, I've worked in the classroom as an early childhood teacher myself, it's an important job. You know, brain development is at its height in the first five years of life. And so these are individuals who are having tremendous impact on children's development and really their future career trajectories, because, you know, those experiences are going to shape who they become and what they do in the future. So, it's an important job. People oftentimes, we hope, go into this industry because they love what they do. But when I was an early childhood teacher, I couldn't pay my rent. I couldn't pay my bills that I had coming in. And ultimately, I did leave you know, that job. And, and luckily, I'm still working in early childhood in some facet. But that happens very often. Um, it's difficult for people who maybe are perfect for the job, who love the job, to stay in that position and actually um, have a have a livable wage and be able to be economically self-sufficient themselves. Um, you know, I, I do want to note also that um, it's not just any child care. It's, I think it's a, a child care that is an excelling child care environment. I can kind of attest to that. Um, of course, anecdotally, uh, my child has always been in child care. My wife and I, we both work. Uh, and so he's been in childcare since he was, I think, uh, six, seven months, something like that. And so he grew up in that environment. I can tell you that it's really helped him a whole lot because it's an excellent center uh, the way we have it in, in Arizona. I'm presuming that's the case here as well. But Colin, uh, Nicole mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, it, it's it's hard to hire. It's hard to retain people because you're competing with other industries that may be paying more. What's the solution to that? Uh, that is a great question. Right. I mean, we, we've tried uh, to take a holistic view of educator compensation. Uh, we provide a lot of training. Um, we pay for uh, a, a lot of our teachers credentials. 
Um, and, you know, we do things like pay above market salaries. Uh, we have top tier medical, dental, vision, life insurance, short term, long term disability plans, paid time off and year end performance bonuses. But, you know, we can't say that we've solved the retention conundrum. And, and give us an idea for an entry level child care provider. What, what is the uh, how much are we looking at in terms of pay range? Uh, so entry level without experience, um, so probably a teaching assistant, uh, anywhere from fifteen to seventeen dollars an hour. Um, lead teachers that are qualified to run a classroom, uh, anywhere from eighteen to twenty three dollars an hour. Got it. And and Jensen, I, I want to ask you, sir, how you, you know when you're talking about employers, um, and you're looking at this problem that we have right now. I, I'm wondering from your end, what can employers do? Uh, first of all, to better accommodate, you know, their staffers, their employers with young children, with young children uh, struggling to find childcare. I know Tawny mentioned that in her hospital, they just decided to create a childcare center. And I know that that's not, you know, necessarily possible or, or feasible uh, for most or many employers. So, you know, as we've kind of led to here, it, it's a complicated problem. I've, you know, I've, I've led the finances for my church's childcare in the past. And I can tell you firsthand, there's a high cost to providing service and you have to be able to cover that cost and you want teachers paid a good wage and you want your kids to have a quality education and, you know, all of these things, the math for this model is just broken. And so one of the things when I look at our, our employers and we have this conversation, I think we've got to align our expectations and what we expect. Because when you look at your K through 12 system, you know, there's a tax incentive for that. There's a tax that's going to offset that. There is nothing to offset this early childhood. And so if your company's out there and you're reviewing this math and you're saying this is becoming too hard to attract and retain employees and I need to do something, I think we have to look at child care as, as part of the benefit because I don't think our expectations and the math align right now. And so for larger employers, they may be able to bring it on site. For smaller employers, you may be able to offset one of these other benefits you're doing with some type of stipend for this. But we have a mathematical problem when it comes to this child care and when it comes to how we align our expectations with what we receive to get people back into the workforce. And we've got to be more creative with our solutions on that. And that requires all of us to participate. There's not one group. There's not a government. There's not a nonprofit. There's not the private sector. There's not more child care facilities. None of those in, in uh, isolation are going to fix this problem. So you're going to have to have all that to the table. So if it's really an issue and our companies are saying, I really can't retain and attract the talent, then I would say, let's step up and have conversations about some creative and realistic ways that we can bridge this gap through benefit programs. Because the math just is a problem. Um, uh, Pat Johnson mentioned that the math is not working. The math is a problem. You know, you're looking at this from a state level, a macro level, if you will. And I wonder um, if there are any incentives, innovations, or efficiencies in regulation that have been utilized in other industries, for example, that you think might be helpful for the childcare business owners and the in- industry, uh, just broadly speaking. Well, I th- so. Uh... First of all, I think that the governor and the assembly looks at this sort of broad-based. And so there are a lot of programs, for example, uh, free kindergarten, uh, preschool, that is both kind of a child care initiative, but also a child success initiative, as Nicole was talking about. So those initiatives are in place already, but also childcare is is something that the state has focused a lot of attention on. We have, not only did we create the Department of Early Childhood uh, and we hired Lisa Roy, who is our new director for that, uh, but beyond the federal stimulus money, which was probably all told closer to $700 million, uh, the state has, and, and thank you, Rip Larson, uh, for being part of this, has put into place quite a few incentive programs, including programs that um, create apprenticeships, certifications, um, uh, financial backing for employers to open child care centers, uh, and, um, and and many more. I won't I won't belabor it, but uh, I I do think it's pretty top of mind for the state. I also think it's it's look, it's, it's not the easiest thing to solve because what you're trying to do is bring people into the workforce that, as Jansen was saying, are not in the workforce right now. And, uh, and that's, 
not the easiest thing to do. But uh, again, we're trying to tackle that. We have a, we have a program that came out of uh, House Bill 1350, and I believe Tani is going to be part of that. She may not know that yet, but I think she is. Um, she where just, Patrick just, Pat just volunteered your Tawny, so just so you know. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, she's going to be great. But that's $90 million that we're going to put into regional training programs where we're going to go into regions of the state and say, what does industry need? And I can almost guarantee you that the top of the list is going to be healthcare, educators, and childcare. And then we're going to issue grants to educational facilities, whether it be higher ed, community college, certification programs, apprenticeships, whatever, to teach the workforce in that region so that you now have skilled workers who, as Rep. Larson talked about, we're not going to cut corners on safety and we're not going to deregulate the childcare industry. We have tried to, to look at the regulations and we always do that to make sure that we're not overregulating. But we're going to make sure that, 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 that safety is top of mind. But get the workers that the industries need, including childcare, uh, and hopefully start to start to uh, you know start to tackle the problem. Thank, thank you for that, Pat. And of course, when you mention regulation, you're, you're, you know, keep in mind that you're dealing with a vulnerable population. And this is our children. Uh, and so, and that's the, the parameters that we're working in. Representative Larson, I want to ask you, sir, because you've, uh, the state has injected a ton of money into the childcare industry. Um, a lot of that money is federal relief money, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, we're not going to have that money again in two years. Uh, you know, much of that money has to be spent by 2026, something like that. So maybe it's distributed. But in any case, it's a big amount. And so you're potentially looking at, correct me if I'm wrong here, a potential uh, fiscal cliff, if you want to put it that way, when that money runs out. And I do wonder what what is on tap? What do you think is the, you know, what might be uh, in terms of funding, uh, what the state might do to kind of anticipate that fiscal cliff and what the state might do to confront that as well? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> thank you for that question. So we'll see, again, the uh, the Proposition EE projected revenues are supposed to backfill that cliff. You know, we had um, so much federal money for, for COVID relief uh, that was injected sort of as a startup, uh, well, to, to kind of jumpstart some of these new programs as well as to stabilize the existing marketplace. Um, I think... In the most rosy scenario, uh, there'll be a fairly seamless handoff where uh, projected revenues collected from the EE nicotine tax um, will basically be able to do a seamless handoff uh, once we do run shot run out of those uh, COVID dollars. Again, like all projections, uh, we'll see how those materialize. There are also a number of, uh, there were a couple of legislative proposals to uh, eliminate the sale of flavored nicotine products, um, which again, from a health standpoint, uh, is a policy that was worth exploring, but is directly at odds with funding the Department of Early Childhood. Um, So I think we as a state are going to have to decide where our priorities lie there, um, because absent those EE revenues materializing, uh, this will be, frankly, a spectacular failure, um, because that's, there's just not there's not a, a dedicated revenue source of that size that could step into the into the breach uh, were that to disappear. I don't know uh, what the next legislative cycle will 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 bring in terms of a flavor ban, uh, but hopefully those revenues will materialize and we'll be able to continue these programs uh, after the the one time COVID relief money uh, dries up. Uh, thank you for that. You know, j- just to note that um, taxing nicotine or nicotine products to and then use that revenue for childcare, early childhood development. That's uh, that's not an uncommon strategy. I've seen that in other states as well. Tony, Tony, I want to go to you. You created your childcare center. Uh, has it started already? Is it operational? It has not. We just got our bids in for our general contractor, so we'll break ground hopefully in August or early September. And then, uh, when do you expect it would become operational? When do you actually start, you know, um, getting in the kids. So it'll be about a year build. So fall of 24 is kind of what we anticipate will be the time frame. 
And I, I do wonder, you know, you've heard all the problems, you know what the problems are in, in terms of staffing. My wife is in the healthcare industry. I just absorbed from her just how stressed out her unit is, her hospital is it's so difficult to find people, um, uh, you know, and, and attract people from out of state. But I, what, what, are, what are the strategies that you've adopted or you're adopting uh, to staff up? Uh, because, you know, I can't help but, but think also uh, if you're in the same, you know, vicinity as um, a childcare um, center as well, plus McDonald's, plus all the other industries. I mean, you keep competing with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're competing with the entire workforce just as everybody else is. So by having the ability to provide on-site childcare, it will be a game changer for us when we talk about recruitment and retention. And we're already seeing that, even though the facility isn't yet open, when we are interviewing candidates from out of state or even in the area and they hear that potential that there is an option for childcare coming, they light up, right? We know that this will be a game changer in terms of morale. Even if you don't have kids, when you're having to maybe work a double shift or a triple shift because someone else has a sick child at home, this impacts everybody in the organization. And the other piece that we are looking at is in terms of that benefit structure, like Jansen mentioned, of going back to that cafeteria type model of maybe somebody doesn't need healthcare or dental or vision or one of our other benefit options, and they can redirect those funds back into their childcare spend. So we're really trying to look at this holistically and ensure that we are, are working to provide solutions across the board. Um, thank you for that, Tony. I, I wanna ask our audience again and remind them, um, uh, please don't hesitate to send in your questions. Uh, we do wanna hear from you. Um, we want to um, ask you what you're thinking. We want you to uh, engage as well. And um, so I want to go back to um, Jansen just really quickly. Um, when you're looking at this problem and when you mentioned that we have to be creative uh, in terms of how we approach this, I, I wonder what, what you mean by that. Give us an example of, of being creative in, 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 you know, I think Tony, Tony's creativity in that, in that sense is, you know, I think just, you know, they just decided they're going to do childcare themselves, but, but for, for other companies, I, I wonder what, what are you seeing in terms of being creative uh, on the ground? Yeah, I think there's probably a number of approaches. What I would say is when I'm saying creative, it's more from how we talk about this, this problem. Uh, we talk about availability, we talk about cost, but then we don't really dig a little deeper. I was looking at the state average. When you look at the K through 12 system, we spend nearly $8,500 a student and that's generated through tax dollars. But when you look through K through 12, you have a much higher scale and administrated 25, 30 per classroom. Your, your pre-K, these early childhood are typically eight to one, eight students to one teacher, or four to one in the infant classes. And so that cost is going to be double or more but yet we say it's too expensive and there's not enough of it. I think we're focusing our energy on the wrong two problems because it is it costs money to pay these teachers and to have good teachers do this. And so we need to talk about how we subsidize from a private sector through a benefit model, how we make it easier rather than kind of casting the light on the child care centers themselves. Maybe I'm alone on that, but I feel like so, so often we want to cast the light on the child care center. Oh, the cost needs to be cheaper or we need something to happen over here. But, but really and truly, again, having sat on the finance side of that, the margins are super, super thin. So the conversation needs to be is what can I do to make this easier for my employees? What can I do to make this attractive to my employees? What can I do? And look, my household was hit by this as well. My wife is a, a master's of early childhood education. The pandemic came along. Guess what? We stopped. She stopped working to make sure the kids are taken care of. She kind of liked not working. And when you look at the pay and, and, and Colin, this isn't a knock, but that 18 to 23, I mean, you have to really look at what you're giving up on, on the life side of that to, to say, what is my cost to re-enter that workforce? She's not re-entered that workforce. And I think there's a lot like her out there that said, uh, my priorities have changed. I got a taste of, of something different. And how do we incentivize and get those individuals back into the workforce? What is that going to take? And it's not going to be one solution from one group. It's going to be a different way to frame this conversation. So it's not a creative one approach. I think that we've got to look at this differently. And, and we got a sneak peek at this report. And I think Kristen and the team at CSI did a great job of starting to put these numbers into better perspective. I say it quite often. It's just math. It's not to water down the topic, but the math tells you a lot. 
And you can't argue or get emotional about those kind of facts. And, and uh, Christine, I want to ask you a question because Jansen, you know, talked about the difficulty of having to choose uh, between going back into the workforce and, you know, leaving your kids when you've had your kids for, let's say, two years every day, single day, right? something like that, right? I mean, I mean, that's that, those are the kinds of choices that um, men make, but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, really is most especially difficult for women as well. But can you talk a little bit about that? Christine, can you hear me okay? Sorry, Luigi, my sound just cut out. Will you repeat that question? Yeah, uh, you know, Jensen uh, mentioned that it's really difficult for people who hadn't been in the workforce, and I guess more particularly for women, to then decide to go back into workforce, which means many things. One of of them is that you're leaving your children behind. You're leaving a, a, a very rewarding environment in which you're interacting with your kids on a daily basis and having to go then go back to the workforce. And if you can talk just a little bit, just really briefly, how difficult that is. Yeah, well, Nicole and I actually started talking about this about a year and a half ago, and we spent a lot of time trying to bring light to this she session. You know, this was a really unique um, phenomenon that hit our country across every single industry. um, And what we found is that more women were being sidelined than men. And this was the first time that it had happened. If you look at the Great Recession, 30% of the workforce that was sidelined was women. Fast forward, pandemic hits, it's now 55% of women were sidelined. And what we're seeing, especially in Colorado, is that, as Jansen just alluded to, women are just not reentering the workforce at the same rate that, that men are. CSI keeps track of monthly job data, and I encourage you to visit um, every month to kind of check this out. But one thing that we've paid particularly close attention to is just women, especially. And then we've tried to break that down even more and look at the age range, you know, between 18 and 45. And we've noted that moms especially have made the decision to opt out. And I think there's a lot of reasons. There's not just one reason, as Jansen alluded to, but I think childcare definitely plays a role in that. When you look at the costs, Colorado, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, has the eighth most expensive childcare in the nation. So women are looking at their career, looking at how much it costs um, for childcare services, and families are looking at their budgets and saying, well, does it even make sense for me to work right now? And I think as a society, what we're at really at risk of, and what I've talked a lot about is we're at risk of losing generations of progress for the working women, because we know that when women leave the workforce, they're less likely to return to the workforce. They are sidelined for promotions, sidelined for raises. Um, that trajectory, that career path that we are seeing women kind of on is all of a sudden lost overnight when they leave the workforce, and it makes it much harder when they reenter. So um, this is really why CSI has leaned in with Epic for this report, which I'll share in the chat here in a moment. Thank you for that, Christine. I want to go to our audience questions. And again, thank you for sending those. Um, this is a question for Colin. Do you think that the additional educational requirements required by the state are limiting your ability to get uh, your staff up to attract the workforce? Um, I'd say yes and no. Um, I think it's a, it's a bit of a challenge when um, people with no experience uh, that are looking to break into the industry uh, come and interview with us. But, you know, we spend a lot of time training um, all of our teachers, giving them the tools to be successful. So uh, overall, I, I think the, the regulations are less burdensome than they were in the past. Um and this could be a question for Jansen or Pat. Uh, are there other Colorado companies doing innovative things with childcare as a benefit, like Tony is doing in in Grand in, in Grand Junction? Um, anyone, any other company that's kind of doing this kind of innovation, Pat or or Jansen? Go ahead, Jansen. I'll yield to you, Pat. Go ahead. Um, I think there. are, I think the answer is yes. I think there are companies that one and the and the state does incentivize this are taking unused space and uh, as as Tony is doing, building childcare facilities within that space. And that's just because they realize that is that's going to be hugely attractive 
to either retaining or getting uh, new employees. There's also uh, a state program, revitalization program, where we go in and look at projects, and this is statewide, this isn't just the metro area, but look at projects, uh, unused or un underused buildings, and we do multi-purpose rehabilitation. So that often includes childcare. It's also um, housing and, uh, and arts, but it, I think almost all of the projects have, don't hold me to that, but I think all, almost all of them have included childcare as well. Thank you. Um, this might be a question for Tony. Uh, when you provide on-site childcare, which is what you're heading toward, what percentage of tuition do they generally subsidize? I guess the question is how much lower in childcare costs would your employers expect as a result of providing on-site on childcare? So we're still working through the modeling of what the rates will be in those sliding fee scales. As a hospital, we do not plan to subsidize that. That will be through the foundation and that percentage will be somewhat small. So we don't expect to pay 100% or even 50% of childcare. And that's important because as we've gone through this modeling, we worked with Epic and went through their design lab process. The other piece of this is we don't want to cannibalize the market and the workforce and, and say that we're paying our, our childcare providers a higher wage or create a bigger problem where our childcare is at such a place that other childcare providers are then closing. So we have to be on par with what the market is currently charging. Our employees will pay for that. And so what we have done is the building and the land will remain our asset, but we've gone out and we've partnered, we've selected an operator who will be running this childcare center as her business. And so she will create those profitability models and, and look to what those fees should be based on the market over here. Um, Representative Larson, um, there has been a lot of focus on, on child care and the child care industry. Um, and I, I wonder, uh, what else do you think? <laughs> I keep asking what else, what else? Uh, I know the state is doing a, a whole lot already, but I do wonder, you know, you've heard everybody on the panel. And, and when, when they mention these ideas, these challenges, I, I do wonder what, you know, when you're hearing them, what's going through your mind? What, Again, I'm going to ask what else you think the state could do, should do, should focus on in the upcoming session. Yeah, honestly, um, I, I'm more of a fan at this point, frankly, of allowing all of the things that we've placed into the pipeline uh, to come to fruition. Uh, there was, I was also noticing in the Q&A uh, question about uh, uh, income tax credit. We actually passed a bill last year. Uh, I was looking that up uh, really quickly. It was uh, House Bill 1010 to provide an income tax credit to early childhood educators uh, that meet certain um, income thresholds, uh, which were set pretty high, 100,000. Uh, I remember the committee hearing rather well because I asked an honest question of, I'd love to meet the early childhood educator who makes $100,000 uh, so they would be ineligible for this program because I don't think they exist. Um, but uh, but again, you know, I think there's a tendency and certainly over perhaps the last four years um, to pass legislation, not allow for it to be fully implemented and then and then, uh, you know, ladle more on top of that. Um, you know, like I said, the, the Office of Early Childhood that we just instituted here is a, is an enormous ground shift. But those programs have not hit the ground and I don't think they've really seeped into the ecosystem you know, uh, Colin and some of the folks on the on the call, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that you felt the the in, you know, the, the change on the ground yet because these programs are just getting stood up. I think we should allow for the massive changes that we've made over the last few years to hit the ground, seep in, see what uh, what those actually look like, and then make course corrections. Um, it's my my sincere hope that that's the philosophy that we take. Um, because we do have a lot of large programs uh, that are getting either getting up and, and running, and I would hate to see course corrections and changes made before those programs are really implemented. Um, because you know, I don't know that that's going to be the most effective way to go about it. Uh, but and a lot of it's just going to look it's going to look different, frankly, uh, for Colin than it might look for you know a community based provider who maybe isn't as focused on the early childhood. Um, on the academic preparation, you know, there's a whole host of different 
uh, childcare models. There's, you know, that traditional home-based model that really is more just focused on, you know, childcare. Then there's something like Collins program, which is more focused on, you know, academic preparedness, I assume, obviously offering a childcare component, but really more of the emphasis is on academic preparedness. Um, and that's the difficulty in this situation where there's a whole host of different providers. There's different goals of what parents are looking for, uh, what the providers are looking for. So hopefully over the next year, we'll see how uh, Office of Early Childhood implements on the ground. Then we can make some adjustments. Um, if we're seeing issues with re recruitment and intention, maybe we need to up the tax credit uh, and maybe we need to, to take a look at, you know, maybe some more streamlining in the, in the administration of, you know, background checks or credentialing. Um, but yeah, so I think that'll all be, it'll be a very interesting year and hopefully next fall we can come back and look and say, okay, now that we've been on the ground for a year, these are the things that maybe aren't working as we intended. So now we'll do a legislative fix, um, but we'll see. Thank, thank you for that. You're asking really people to be just a bit more patient uh, and that's hard, but you're also asking people to let this play out. Let's play the, the long game, if you will. And, and hopefully when we come back here, you know, next year, we'll have this conversation again next year. Hopefully by this time next year, we'll have a, we'll have solved our challenges or, you know, some of them now, and we'll have different challenges next year and, and hopefully, hopefully, you know, better position to also address them. Um, we're, we're about at an end here. I want to again, introduce Nicole Real, who is the uh, president and CEO of Epic. Nicole joined uh, partnering, executives partnering to invest in children as president CEO in September of 2019. Her experience spans across the private and nonprofit sectors with her career beginning as an early childhood teacher at an on-site corporate child care program. After working in the financial sector on behalf of large, uh, large national home builder for several years, she returned to early childhood and supported the quality ratings and onboarding of over more than 200 childcare programs participating in the Denver Press School program after it was authorized by Denver voters in 2006. Uh, most recently, Nicole held the position of CEO at Denver Childhood, uh, Denver's Early Childhood Council, where she helped build a team of 35 staffers and an organizational operating budget of $5.7 million over the course of eight years. Nicole, you have the last word, ma'am. Thank you, Luigi, uh, and thank you so much for your outstanding moderation and support today. We really appreciate it. Um, this was an awesome conversation. We have over 20 questions in our Q&A, and I'm sure we could talk about this for another couple of hours, but we don't have that amount of time. Um, we do encourage you to check out the new report that was just released this morning. Um, we weren't able to put it in the chat box, but we will send that link out to, um, to everyone via email after this event is done. So please take, take some time to read that. We'll have an executive summary for those of you who want the quick hit summary. And then we have a much longer read that really goes into some interesting depth and detail on the childcare business model and the finances of it. Um, so want to just encourage everyone to really take some time and review that um, because it does answer, I think, some important questions and really digs into um, that math problem that Jansen mentioned um, and really why we, we are at this um, significant challenge right now. Um, so I actually, I had the opportunity to recently attend an event um, where Nicole Malakowski, the first U.S. female Thunderbird pilot, left us with some advice, which was that nothing of significance is ever accomplished alone. And that is absolutely true for this event, um, as well as the report that was launched this morning. So I first off just want to thank our panelists for participating today. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, offering your expertise and, um, and sharing more about the work that's happening around the state. Um, thank you so much to the Gazette and Colorado Politics and Luigi for your team and meeting our, our media partners in this event. And of course, I really want to thank and acknowledge uh, both uh, Kristen's team at the Common Sense Institute and the EPIC team for their work on this. Um, everyone put in time and effort, and especially to Alexa and Alethea um, for the hours they put into content writing and financial scenarios for the report as well. Um, I know that both of our organizations are really thankful for our board members and, um, and donors and other partners for their support. 
Um, and in particular, Epic is really grateful to uh, the WEND Collective and Community First Foundation for their support of our building up initiative and some data collection efforts that really helped us um, write this report and, and glean some more information from this. You know, Colorado has made some great progress. Uh, we've done some amazing things here in Colorado, but we have a lot more work to do. So regardless of your industry, your role, your affiliations, I really implore each of you to get involved and help us address these challenges that we're facing. Um, you know, you can learn more about uh, Common Sense Institute's research and work at their website at commonsenseinstituteco.org. And of course, learn more about Epic and how you can join other business leaders in addressing these um, challenges and the needs in our community at coloradoepic.org. Um, so we hope that this was a really illuminating conversation for you. We see this as just the beginning of more conversations to come and hope that you will continue um, to participate, to get involved and share with your colleagues um, and others in the business community as well. Um, if you want to connect, you know where to find us. And we hope that everyone has an excellent day. Thank you again, Luigi. And thank you, Nicole. And before I let you go, um, if you can kindly... Uh, follow the Denver Gazette on Twitter and uh, Call Politics on Twitter, uh, Facebook and LinkedIn. We are there. And again, I want to thank everybody. Christine, thank you for your time. Colin, thank you for your time, sir. Uh, Tony, uh, Nicole Jensen, Pat, thank you for your time. Representative Larson, thank you for your time. And with that, I would say I'm going to say uh, goodbye and enjoy the rest of your day and I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.